Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, a podcast where a noob and an expert boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, JJ McQuarrie. Say hi, JG. Hey there, Kev. How are you doing this week? Well, I, I don't have a pithy joke. Uh, Chekhov said he was 22 in this episode, and that made me want to die. It <laughs> <laughs> made you want to die. Right, well, we'll just gloss over any uh, any potential age-based issues I might be having in the subject. And um, just admit that this week we are going to be tackling uh, Who Mourns for Adonis. Uh, and of course, as always, we are not tackling it alone. So say hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. Now, really, I'm Michael Darling. Uh, nice to meet y'all. Lovely to have you in the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, doing all right. Doing all right. You know, preparing for the uh, you know the hurricane that's going to kill us all here in Los Angeles. Uh, well, we hope not. We hope not. And you, I mean, you yeah. think it's a hurricane, but maybe it's some muscular guy just pointing his finger at you. <laughs> uh, no, like he's going to grab the city with his green hand. <laughs> yeah, this is why everyone's talking about like fill up your bathtub with water so you have fresh water and make sure you buy like a week's worth of supplies because of the giant green hand that's going to come rattle the city uh, during the hurricane if i do die in the hurricane i want you to release this episode as is okay okay i, prom- I promise you that i will <laughs> well welcome to the podcast um as we always do with our guests uh we like to give them the chance to tell us a little bit about their history with star trek and what star trek means to them so what is star trek to you how did you get into it and um how are you enjoying uh, the original series well here's my dirty little secret i am more of a star wars guy to start so get out i come from <laughs> I come from the other side of the aisle, but like I've always enjoyed what Star Trek I've seen. Like I've seen, I think, all of Next Generation in like second, third run syndication, and I've watched Deep Space Nine through, uh, which you know, DS Nine, fantastic stuff. Seen a smattering of original series, and I'm currently watching Lower Decks, which is a ton of fun. Uh, but yeah, like I am definitely more of a 24th century guy than I am. A original series run. So how much of the original series have you actually seen? A smattering? Like, I can't really say for sure, because it is, like, scattered episodes throughout, like, my entire life, let's say. Okay, I know I've seen, like, some of the big ones, like Troubles with Cribbles and Space Seed. Wait, Space Seed is the con one, right? Yeah, it sure is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've seen, like, the movies. But the original series is something that I haven't really gotten around to, like, watching in thorough. Okay, excellent. Well, I'm very much looking forward to uh, to your opinions on this. Thank you very much. Um, Kev, would you care to give us our usual summary, please? All right. Uh, the Enterprise is attacked by a jug-glowing green hand <laughs> and dragged down to the surface of a planet um, where they meet the Greek god Apollo, or as they later determine, an alien who impressed the ancient Greeks by pretending to be Apollo and inspiring their mythology. Um, they are assisted by... Lieutenant Carolyn Palamas, who is an expert in uh, mythologies and culture, uh, and she take, catches the eye of Apollo. He makes her, I guess, his bride or whatever, his consort, and then starts, <laughs> and in usual Star Trek original series godlike fashion, torturing the crew and asking them to come stay on his planet with him forever uh, and worship him. Uh, through a lot of schemes that don't work out, eventually... Carolyn uh, convinces Apollo that she doesn't love him and then that distracts him enough for the Enterprise to destroy his temple, reducing his power, and then he goes off and meets up with the rest of the, his gods, I guess. And then the crisis is resolved. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's 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 a whole thing this episode, uh, and it's oh definitely uh, definitely some uh, some space for a discussion on this one, I think. But uh, Michael, let's let's start with you. How how did you find this one? I found it on Paramount Plus, or do you mean like uh, the quality? <laughs> uh, let's go for the quality. Let's say. Yeah, um, it's a you know it's not a great episode of Star Trek. Like I know that y'all watched like the one that comes right before this is a Muck Time, which I know mm. is a banger. So it's probably a bit of a whiplash to go from like a nice crazy one like that to this which has promise because it's like oh they meet a guy who thinks he's apollo okay this is gonna be interesting but then like they don't really do much with it like he's just a guy and not particularly interesting uh before we get into like further thoughts i just want to address one thing kev forgot like one very important part from the plot which is the episode starts with like we meet carolyn Pahumas, who has never been on the show before and i think never shows up again is that right jg uh yeah that's correct yeah uh and she's been up all night working on a project for spock and then scotty more or less asks her out on a coffee date which leads to this incredibly insane scene of kirk and bones just like being the cattiest bitches who've ever lived about like whether or not uh Scott and or, yeah Scotty and Carolyn would be a good couple. <laughs> I love the little gossipy scene. Um yeah, I was definitely trying to keep the summary as short as I can as I usually do, but yeah, it's there are definitely some elements that raise my eyebrows like Kirk's just assumption, very 1960s assumption that if she were to be married, she wouldn't be working anymore. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but besides that, uh, yeah, the, the could you get that excited over a cup of coffee, all of that stuff is just uh, so funny. Yeah, like, I loved that, like, it was at that moment I was like, oh, I need to take notes because this episode is starting off on a bizarre note already. Yeah, I, that, that, that line McCoy gets, oh, I can, I, even from here, I can see his pulses up. Um, where are you looking? (laughs) Like, there's a cut immediately after Scotty asks her to get coffee, where they cut to a close-up of Shatner, and he, as Kirk, just has this grin like, hmm, my man thinks he's got game. Well, let's see how this plays out. (laughs) Yes, it's a lovely lovely way to get the episodes uh, underway. Uh, Kev, how did you find this one? I... I don't know. I really liked it. Sounds strong. I'm of two minds with this. It's like the plot is nonsense and it's just a little all over the place. And some of the characters don't make sense, but I really appreciate the big swings it's taking. I, I mean, it's kind of like what Michael said. Um, it's really cool to have like a Greek God as the villain, but then it turns out to be just kind of a guy, but it leads to like a lot of like fun dialogue and, like really great Shatnerian line readings. <laughs> just like when, whenever you get Shatner screaming at a godlike figure, it's always very fun. <laughs> uh, of course, we're going to reach the pinnacle of this when we, in a couple years, when we get to him saying, "What would God need with a spaceship?" <laughs> but yeah, it's I don't know. You still get a lot of fun stuff here. There's enough entertainment value, I should say, that this isn't just like another run of the mill episode. Uh, yeah, even if my grade at the end might reflect that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. The whole thing with the um, you know the Greek gods are um, not really something that we've seen in Star Trek up to this point. We've had kind of like 
all-powerful beings, or we've had Gary Mitchell who thought he was a god, uh, but we've never really bumped into something which is, you know, just like literally, oh, right, so we're meeting Apollo this week. Okay, guess that's what we have to deal with. Um, that's it, it, it's sort of pleasingly unashamed about the fact, you know what I mean? Like, they don't try and gloss it particularly. It's just like, oh, but, like, maybe this is, like, Apollo. Like, they came to Earth 5,000 years ago, and we just have to accept that as fact. And what's interesting about that is that, generally speaking, you would call that sort of uh, von Danikinism. You know, Eric von Danikin published uh, Chariots of the Gods and Was God an Astronaut and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, it, it was... Um, it was uh, Chariots of the Gods that was the big thing that really kind of cemented the idea that, um, you know, maybe the ancient gods of Greece or, you know, the, you know Central America or whatever were, were these ast astronauts that came to visit the planet. But it's published a year after this episode. So it's not really something which is much in the public consciousness in 1967. Um, and, yeah, I and... looked up that too, because I was wondering about that as the episode uh, was running. I was like, was Chariots of the Gods out already? Yeah, but no, it wasn't. It, it, it's the year after. Chariots of the Gods is, uh, is 68 and Who Mourns for Adonis is, is 67. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of prescient in a way. Like a lot of Doctor Who is predicated on on, oh, yeah. on that kind of stuff. Um, and a lot mm -hmm. of it is just straightforward kind of von Danikinism. Um, but this isn't. This is uh, this is sort of Star Trek getting a hop. And I, I honestly think that's quite impressive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot conceptually going right here. Um, it's just, I think it just has a lot of those 1960s pacing problems where there's no B plot. So it's just the characters throwing themselves against the problem over and over again with slightly different solutions until something works. Yeah. Like the B plot is just Spock and Uhura trying to figure out like, okay, how can we cut a hole in this guy's defenses? I will say that it's it's very pleasing to see Uhura actually get stuff to do in this episode, though. Yeah. Like, she's got a proper oh, yeah. role. Like, um, you know, all, all those kind of lame jokes about, oh, well, you know, she's just the secretary in the bridge. Like, if you ever want to point to an episode that proves that's not the case, like, this is a this is a pretty good case for it. You know, like, she's competent. She's very clearly the head of her department. She's doing um, delicate, sensitive work. Uh, you know, she commands Spock's respect, which is no mean feat. And it works. Like, she's really brilliant in this. It's not a lot of screen time per se, but she gets a, a proper meaty role. And the Shell McCall's has got something she can get her teeth into. And Ahura really, really works in this. It, it's it's such a... In amongst all the Shatnerian acting and Scotty being very out of character, it's just really pleasing to see uh, Uhura, like, get a fair crack at the whip. And, and, and you know, and the Shell McCall's just runs with it. It's absolutely lovely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and... Uh... Nimoy, God, he's so cool as Spock. Like I know that's that is the coldest take imaginable, but just like he's got that dry wit when he's not like making a joke per se, but you can tell that there's a touch of humor to something he's saying, or even just like towards the end when they're shooting at the temple, uh, like he's just sitting in the chair, like in the captain's chair, very calm and just like you know, continue firing. Yeah, Nimoy is such a good hand on the character at this point. It's unreal. I mean, the muck time was definitely the episode we talked most about that, but even still, like, you still see it here and everywhere else. He's all over. He's just incredible, and obviously the fan favorite at this point. Even the writers know that. Um, and But yeah, back to Uhura. It is nice so far in the second season to see, like, the sort of, I don't I guess you'd call them the second 
not second tier B level because that makes it sound like I'm insulting them, but like <laughs> the the Uhura, Sulu, Scotty, and now Chekhov team, like getting more to do. Like this is our first Scotty centric episode, you could say. Uhura's got a lot to do. Tech, George Takei as Sulu gets some really good line ratings, especially near the beginning. Um, and Chekhov was just introduced, but he's all over in a way where that first season was so Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and just the guest stars. Yeah, there's a real feel of ensemble to this episode, which given the division between what happens on the planet and what happens on the spaceship is, is pretty impressive. Um, but yeah, everybody gets a good meaty role. It's really nice to see Walter Koenig actually get the chance to just to, to stretch a little bit. Um, yeah, he's really fresh and he's new. And, you know, despite that wig, he makes a really, really good attempt at, at, at making uh, Chekhov feel like this fully fleshed out character. Scotty, yeah, he is a bit out of character because he's always been this kind right. of calm, rational, kind of in control character, you know, dependable, stoic, all that kind of stuff. And here he's acting um, just a little bit like a giggly 14-year-old who's never seen a boop before, you know, uh, <laughs> which isn't the greatest characterization for him. But, you know, okay, fine. We have to have somebody on the, on the, on the staff who is... Uh, you know, going to have this relationship in inverted commas with uh, with Carolyn. Um, so it's Scotty, but it, it does push him a bit out of character. But yeah, like you say, Kev, um, Josh Dekai gets some really great line readings. Like just everybody gets something that helps contribute towards the episode. And that's just so pleasing when, when Star Trek can do these ensemble pieces. Even like even the Moy is like kind of sidelined a bit in this episode, even though, um, you know, he still has plenty to do. But everybody gets to contribute. And even in, in, in episodes where there are weaknesses, and there definitely are in, in this episode, but in episodes where there are weaknesses, it really helps to keep everything hanging together when you have that kind of ensemble feeling. Yeah, I think this one's interesting because there's no away team. Everyone, like, no away team redshirt. Everyone who gets sent down to the planet is one of our main guys. Yeah, there's not even a redshirt. Yeah. Every, every, yeah. every, well, I suppose uh, I suppose uh, Lieutenant Carolyn Pomeris is is the closest we have, but you know, yeah, she true. makes it. And, yeah, she's and she's like a featured guest star. She's not just canon vibe. Exactly. Yeah, like she and um Apollo are two big guest stars this episode, uh, and the rest of the guest stars are just like regular bridge people. But yeah, they. I don't do you want to talk about the guest performances. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Leslie Parrish, um, owner of the very fascinating history I was looking up, a huge oh, political activist while this episode was airing. But I uh, was oh, um, protesting the Vietnam War, meeting with Bobby Kennedy, like literally months after this episode aired uh, because of her Viet anti Vietnam War efforts. Uh, she supported uh, Tom Bradley's campaign. Oh, um, yeah, she tried to. Yeah, and she started. She tried to start an LA television station that was like left wing, unbiased news that was shut yeah. down after a couple of years. So, um, yeah, basically throughout her whole life, she's been like a political activist. Uh, so still alive, and cool. <laughs> that's wonderful for her. Um, but yeah, and then also has a Star Trek guest spot, which is just such a fun little thing. 
Yeah, and a, a solid TV career behind her as well. And, you know, a lot of the TV yep. stuff that she's done is exactly the kind of cannon fodder, cannon fodder, sorry, televisual <laughs> fodder, sorry, Freudian slip, um, that you would expect from somebody who's working in the industry in this time. So you've got 77 Sunstreet Strip, you've got Perry Mason, uh, The Lieutenant, Wild Wild West, Batman is in there, you know, uh, you know, a lot of familiar kind of uh, pulpy genre TV, Man from Uncle, all this kind of stuff but it's a really solid run that 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 she has um you know there's some decent film credits in there as well it's it's a really this also i always feel like patronizing when i say this i don't mean to be but it's a really like solid career up until sort of the late 70s Oh, and also the Great Spider Invasion, but we'll gloss over that one for the time being. Um, <laughs> you know, they can't all be hits, right? <laughs> but you know, like she's in the Manchurian Candidate, like that's a good film yeah. to have on your on oh, your no. CV, right? Um, so yeah, and she's she's effective in this role. She does the she does the heel turn with Apollo surprisingly well after Kirk's told her, you know, spurn him, reject him, and she does a really good job of bringing across that that sense that she doesn't want to be doing this. But she is going to nonetheless because that's what her duty is. It's a it's a lovely little performance. It's not really one of Star Trek's most hailed performances, but I think it really does deserve praise. Absolutely, and I think the only downside is the plot they've given her is ridiculous. <laughs> I don't understand why she's. Oh yeah, her her falling in love with Apollo is so unmotivated. It's just borderline insanity. But I'm oh, sorry. Oh yeah. But it's a great performance, that's it. I think the problem with the character is the fact that, like, we meet her for the first time in this episode and then she's never there again. Like, if she had been established for, like, a couple episodes as just, like, a regular figure on the bridge, then we'd be like, oh, there's weight to this. As opposed to, like, we have no idea who this woman is. Like, we're you could miss the fact that she's an expert in ancient history. Uh, and not quite understand why she'd be seduced by this guy other than like he's kind of hunky uh yeah like we don't have a history with this character which makes it harder for us to understand her motivations so do you know do you guys know how the episode was originally going to end I was just looking it up. Yeah, <laughs> so oh. pretty wild. Yeah, so oh, I'm excited. originally she was that uh, McCoy was going to reveal that she was pregnant at the end of the episode. No, that's holy shit. Yeah, that's a swing, right? Because there's 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 two incidents. Either when they traipsed off into the bushes, they they uh, enjoyed themselves rather more than one normally does in bushes. Well, you know. Anyway, let's gloss over that. Um, you know, that's that's fine. Or like when Apollo loses his temper once she's rejected her. Uh, once uh, she's rejected him, it's rape. Um, so, but that's, and, and it was next because it was just going to be too much for the, for the, uh, network at the time. Um, oh, yeah. but holy hell, that would have been quite a swing for the episode to go for. <laughs> yeah. I am kind of, gl- like, it's such a swing, but I'm kind of glad they didn't. That would have been too much, like you said, to think about. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's too much, but also like, I think it would be a more interesting ending than the kind of just like. Okay, well, that was weird that we get in this one. Because, like, uh, I mentioned this before we started airing. Like, with my Star Trek background being more, like, next-gen DS9, like, this entire episode, I was thinking, like, how would Picard handle this? Because he'd be a lot more philosophical about the idea of, like, oh, hey, 
if this guy is who he claims to be, we have just discovered like first contact was not the first time man has met aliens. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And then what does it mean that this guy who has now become so basically power hungry is also someone who was responsible for all of Western civilization? Like, as opposed to what we get in this ending where it's just Shatner like, huh, well, that was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Like, Shatner's beginning and end of this is, gods, we don't need those. I, I love the line where it's like, we have no more, no more need for gods except the one. That That is a pretty good turn of phrase. But yeah, he's so uncurious about this. He's just like, another day on the Enterprise. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, I, he, I, like, you can hear that Shatner's trying to put something into the very final line. That, what is it, um, would it have hurt us just to gather a few laurel leaves or something? Um, but, you know, nobody's buying that nonsense. Like, nobody, like this, yeah. this guy was an asshole to everyone. He deserved what was coming to him. Like, why, you know, just, yeah, whatever. Um, and I guess, it, like, in a way, Next Gen, sorry, very mild spoilers, Kev, uh, but in a way, Next Gen kind of slightly bumps up against us with the episode The Chase. Um, where they have to race around trying to like reconstruct the DNA of something or other, and then they discover this kind of race that helped seed the galaxy, sort of thing. Um, oh, that's a good one because, yeah, because it's them and like the Klingons and the Romulans, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, it's it's a weird one. So, so this isn't the only time that Star Trek is going to you know go down this route. Um, but by the time the 1980s, or I think actually early 1990s for that episode, roll round, it is, it's flat out uh, von Vanekenism of that kind of like, well, you know, we're all, you know, it, this is this is what it is. It's all, all what's got an astronaut kind of stuff. Um, and again, it's it's kind of interesting that this episode doesn't, it, it, it both fully goes for that in a really kind of full throttled way, but also doesn't kind of fall into the traps that a lot of sci-fi will do once that becomes something which is more part of the, the popular culture and particularly the way that um, Apollo is portrayed. He isn't portrayed as an alien who like came to earth and, and uh, you know, these, these, these uh, primitive uh, people from 5,000 years ago thought that they were gods because they were aliens. Like he literally looks like Apollo. He's got the laurel leaves on his head. He's got the over the shoulder number, very stylish. Everybody's wearing in Athens this year. Um, you know, he's got the, 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 the muscular chest, another victim of uh, Gene Brod- Roddenberry's weird dislike of men with chest hair. Uh, he had to be shaved for this episode, but, <laughs> Which is also something William Shatner's had to endure at some point in the past, um, but like he he literally looks like Apollo. He's not just like uh, like somebody in Klingon makeup who would have been on Earth or whatever. Um, he literally looks like the physical representation of of you know the statues and and everything that we have that survived from antiquity. That's a, a very unusual approach for this kind of was God an astronaut story, and I think it kind of works for him because it does mean the episode can take a really big swing with it. Mm-hmm. It also means that they can save money because they can use standing sets and costumes on the RKO lot. Oh, this wasn't standing. This was put together for oh, the episode. Yeah, it, it, they could only really afford one really big set, which is the one we spend all our time on. But it wasn't. It wasn't a standing set. It was put together for this episode. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they did have budget still in this season. I think we discussed this in our season one recap where it's like, Star Trek, I mean, they had to cut corners where they could because it was such an ambitious show. But yeah, they they could build full sets when they had the time and money to do so. 
<laughs> and you know, I, although we mock it, like the green hand, that was a really big special effect for 1967. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was genuinely impressive. So was the idea that, you know, you know, the scenes where uh, Apollo grows to this massive size, it doesn't really look like much now. And it probably doesn't seem that spectacular next to, say, uh, like a Ray Harryhausen movie or something like that. But to achieve that on a budget, on time, on television, in 1967, that's a major, major achievement. And, you know, it, okay, it looks a bit ridiculous now. And, like, even even at this point in history, like, Lord Dex is still taking the piss out of the green hand. Well, that's fine, you know. Um, <laughs> but in a way, that just proves how iconic it is, what an impact right. something like that is. It looks ridiculous, but because everybody really does take it seriously and play it straight, it never descends into camp. Yes, it looks a bit ludicrous now, but it was a really impressive achievement. And and the episode does deserve real credit for, for its visual effects as well. It, it wasn't nothing, however much it might look a bit cheesy now. Oh, yeah. A disembodied hand holding a starship in place is a great visual, and it feels very, like, pulp magazine cup. Mm. And I love the cast reacting to the hand crushing the starship. It's some very, like, classic, the crews on the bridge reacting to damage we can't see stuff that like the whole cast is so good at like with like the headaches and like those shaking about like that all stuff is really it's just effective even though it's also so simple yeah uh let me tell you a fun little story so dan curry who did like the visual effects for next generation ds9 voyager enterprise he went to middlebury college which is where my dad went he was in the same class year so back in 1998 we went to my dad's 30th reunion uh, and Curry was there doing a presentation on Star Trek visual effects. So what was really fun was he showed like one of those classic, we see it in this episode, shots of like the Enterprise takes a hit and then everyone has to do like the tumble and dive and shake and the camera shakes. So he showed it like as it airs and then showed it with just like a stable camera. And it was so funny seeing everyone reacting to uh, you know, enterprise damage, but without the visual indicator for us of the camera shaking. So we've just got people doing weird, uh, like, shaking movements for no reason in this context. I've seen a gif of that. I, I don't know if it's the same scene or just someone else managed to do that effect of stabilizing it. But it looks like the crew like plays hide and seek essentially. Yes. <laughs> they like run and spin around and find the little hiding spots. It's <laughs> it's ridiculous to see, but it's so good. Mm. I mean, again, it's it, it's a credit to how simple stagecraft can really make something come alive. Because there are a couple of people when the ship's being like crushed and shaken about and all the rest of it, like they're doing their full on notice me dive across the cameras. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> they're going yeah. for it, and that, you know that's great. It's very enthusiastic, but you know, it it, it yeah, without without just something as simple as shaking the camera, it looks utterly ridiculous. And yet it's kind of convincing. It works and we buy into it. And that's, yeah, it's it's just very simple, like stagecraft, but it's incredibly effective for that. And again, it's, it's so easy to mock, but Star Trek deserves real credit for being able to pull that kind of stuff off week in, week out. Yeah, especially t- over 25 episodes a week, or a year rather. Um, yeah, it's just so, it had to make so much television in one year. And... I mean, they mostly pulled it off. Like we did, like most of the season one episodes, and uh, this show has lasted long enough. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a question for you guys. 
So you know, you know the Enterprise, uh, those incredibly modern spaceship that exists to seek out new life and new civilizations. Why does it have this expert in antiquities and ancient civilizations and archaeology on board? <laughs> I was thinking this too. What's, what's she there for? My only guess, and this is obviously something that wasn't thought of at the time, but is that she also is interested in alien culture and um, mythology. And so when they find a civilization, she goes down and looks at like their culture and mythology and belief systems throughout their entire history and like analyzes that. I mean, that is it's that's a, a great stretch. reason. No, no, I think that's a great reason. And I really wish the episode had bothered to put it in. Yeah, yeah. that's the thing. Well, yeah, like, again, going back to that opening, like we know she's working on some project for Spock, but it's not really explained other than like, I was up all night working on this project for Spock, which again... What is she working on if she's an expert in antiquities on a 24th century, uh, sorry, 23rd century spaceship? It, yeah, there, uh, that's the thing. There's, there's no answer to that question. And there kind of should be, because otherwise it looks like they've contrived to have a, an antiquities expert on the away team, sorry, landing party, not away team, uh, landing party, just on the off chance that they happen to bump into a Greek god this week. Um, and of course that's the actual reason but you know like one line to just to lampshade it you know like oh I'm working on Spock because he's been doing some research into you know Vulcan's past that's literally all it needs and like all right well okay well that kind of makes sense I guess Um, and then she gets caught up in this tale it's like one line or two lines would be enough to cover it but uh, yeah it's not there Uh, question from the perspective of the narrative of Star Trek where, like, have they discussed, like, first contact and prime directive stuff within the series yet? Offhandedly. Uh. <laughs> it's very generous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, the prime directive has been name-dropped, I think. Yeah, it has. And I believe they've mentioned first contact with Vulcans. It was, like, Earth's first contact. Okay. But, like, never in a way that's, like, actually important. Okay, because I was just wondering, like, because I don't want to do too much work for, uh, like, the universe, as it were, here. But, like, maybe the idea that they have someone like that on hand so that they can make sure, like, you know, when doing first contact that they're not inadvertently coming off like gods, which, again, like, doesn't make sense with a context where, like, the idea of meeting a god, like, or an alien who claimed to be an earth god uh, hasn't happened before. So, yeah, like, I feel like I'm doing too much work here to try to explain this now. Especially because that's never a precaution they ever take. <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be a couple of episodes uh, before uh, before uh, the original series bows out where the Prime Directive is is very directly addressed. But it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there. And when we do, you might wish they hadn't bothered (laughs) um but yeah it it, it, so it it exists i mean i guess first contact and and sort of the prime directive doesn't really apply in this place because it's supposed to apply to pre-warp civilizations and if apollo and uh aphrodite and anybody else that uh, the scriptwriter could remember from their days at school um made it all the way across to earth and back again i guess yeah like it doesn't it doesn't really apply, I guess. 
Yeah. Well, also, the planet is identified as being completely devoid of life forms when they first scan it and come across it. Well, yeah. If anything, first contact is made by Apollo to them with the hand and then his giant floating space head. <laughs> oh, the giant floating space head. How far wrong can you go with one of those? <laughs> <laughs> Bless them, they try so hard. Um, I mean, you know, we've talked about Apollo. We haven't really talked about Michael Forrest and his performance much uh, as yet. So, uh, like, like Michael, what do, you, what do you think of him? Do you think he's effective as Apollo? <sighs> okay, that sigh probably tells me what well, I need I mean, to know. Well, here's the thing. Like, this is a, that's a complicated question. Just, like, Apollo seems like a drip. Like, he's, <laughs> yeah. like, Towards the end, I started wondering, like, do you think, like, the other gods all just ditched Apollo because he's such a drip? Like, <laughs> they're probably being worshipped on some backwater in the Gamma Quadrant right now, whereas he's just like, I am Apollo, worship me! And they're like, this guy, he's, he's just the worst. Like, I'm convinced that all the other gods just ditched him, and they're off on some backwater in the Gamma Quadrant getting worshipped right now. And, you know, Ryza was probably founded by Aphrodite, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I quite like the idea. I was like, you know, he's left with the idea, oh, oh, uh, you know, uh, Hermes cast himself to the wind and, and Aphrodite, uh, she she let herself go and she was carried by the winds. Just, no, we just buggered off. Enough of this already. Um, that's, that's a very appealing idea. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I think, Oh God! Um, I think Michael Forrest is a decent actor, but I'm not sure that this is necessarily the role that shows that off for him. Um, I, I think when he does melancholy, he's not too bad at it, but it's a weird fit for the character. And when he's trying to be kind of sort of dominant or domineering, he's a bit kind of foot stampy. It's a bit kind of no, no, you won't do what I say. I told you, I'll be very cross with you. Um, well, that's not really bringing across the awe and majesty of Mount Olympus uh, as so much, uh, you know, uh, a slightly annoyed nine-year-old that's had the candy taken away from them. Yep, exactly. That's dead on. Yeah, it's, I think, like with uh, Leslie Parrish, he's a good actor. He's really trying it all. Ooh. He's giving a full force, but it's even worse than her material. It's just not that engaging. And so he's just trying to engage with a very one-dimensional character. And I do like how grandiose he is, how like big he's going, but yeah, there's not much to that Apollo. So it, it just, there's just nowhere for it to go. Yeah. That's the thing. She gets a second beat because she at least gets the conflict of like, yeah. this guy who says he's a God loves me and loves us. And, but I'm also loyal to the ship. Whereas he is just like his entire arc is I'm Apollo. Yes. Yeah, it lets yeah. an arc more of a full stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I do like the moment when uh, she compare, like when she's telling Apollo off and compares him to a bacteria. That is brutal. I oh yeah, that. that was really good, and especially because you can tell, like the fact that she doesn't want to do it, which again baffling, but she plays that moment so well, where you can tell she's like doing it through her teeth. But yeah, it's such a brutal put down. Of, it's like I'm no more interested in you than I would be in a bacteria or something to scientifically study. Hmm. it's just it, yeah it hurts and and it is an effective moment like it, I, again I'm, I'm not sure apollo's anger quite manages to come across there um but it, it's definitely an effective moment when when she does it simply because 
we know she's sticking the knife into her own heart as well, if you'll excuse a, a slightly expanded metaphor. Um, and that, that really does make it feel like it's got a, a bit of bite to it, that it's not just this kind of contrived drama for, for the sake of it. And I, I, you know, sometimes William Shatner's acting comes in for some criticism. I think it's fair to say. But honestly, today, he's been pretty great. Um, but I did wonder, like, if it was him playing Apollo rather than Michael Forrest, like, he would go really big and probably quite far over the top. But at least there would be a sense that um, it mattered to him. Like, a lot of the heavy lifting of Apollo's uh, upset at being rejected comes from like the special effects we get the lightning we get the big growing thing the sort of translucent manchester and all the rest of it but it's not really being carried so much by him and that slightly undermines that that conclusion as well does that do you would you agree with that or, or i don't know oh, yeah it's, a, bit, it's a funny one yeah i fully agree with that i think he is just like he's just not you're right. I think Shatner would be able to find a more depth than Michael Forrest can. Yeah, it's, you know, I think part of it is the part as written. But yeah, like I think Shatner probably would have tossed in some grandioseness that felt less petulant than this performance does. Like, this guy at no point gives me the sense that he is, he was ever thought of as a god. Like, he's got the powers, but he doesn't seem like someone that the ancient Greeks would have stamped into legend as a god to be worshipped. No, and the the kind of lampshade of the line about, um, you know, oh, is it, is it McCoy that gets the line? Um, you know, oh, uh, you know, if, if they had turned up and they could change their shape, uh, you know, they'd be mistaken for gods. You know, how could they be seen as anything else? Um, I think I might have an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to see DeForest Kelly. I haven't talked about DeForest Kelly. It's nice to see him get a, a, a rather expanded role. It's not a vast amount that he gets to do, but it's good. He's just such a pleasing presence to have on screen. And it's nice that he gets to be there. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, I felt that was going somewhere. And then I realized that actually he doesn't do very much in this episode, does no. he? His big moment is in the beginning when, as I said, he inspired. Yeah, sorry, he and Kirk are being catty. Uh, and, like, who is it Kirk that comes up with the big plan of, like, let's all just distract him and uh, annoy him, and then that'll divide his attention? Yeah. Because I like that as a plan. That's actually really solid. And the way that the four guys all start uh, just, like, shouting at him, trying to, you know, get him bothered. Like, that's good planning, and it's it's fun stuff, actually. That's very fun. Oh, yeah. And McCoy gets a lot of fun catty lines. Uh, he gets to do Spock's fascinating oh, yeah. uh, when something happens, when Apollo does something. Uh, he also gets to complain about Spock when uh, Chekhov does like a science report. He's like, Spock's contaminating the boy. <laughs> there's, there's so many little fun moments from him. But yeah, plot-wise, he has not much to do. Yeah, but those little lines, it, 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 it's... Another example of DeForest Kelly being able to do so much with so little because they're, like he could play that line in any number of ways, but he just does it very lightly. It's a very gentle kind of way 
and his his compassion and humanity do come across a lot, especially when um, Scotty is getting slapped about the place for no readily apparent reason. Uh, you know, like his his concern comes across as incredibly genuine in a way that I don't think is really there on the page. You know, he 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 gets doctory lines, but you know, DeForest Kelly can flesh them out. He can make them seem like they're more than they are, and that's that's exactly what you want from somebody who's in that that kind of role. He's he's just really good at it. Uh, speaking of Scotty, we've said how he's a little out of character in this episode. He's a lot more hot tempered. He also gets like warped around a lot like oh, yeah i think he gets he gets knocked out in some capacity well maybe not knocked out but knocked to the ground like three or four times by apollo yeah and it's kind of funny because he's just supposed to be the tech guy <laughs> so i guess that's appropriate that he's getting knocked around but man he really takes it i was <laughs> i was watching this episode uh with my partner and he's not a, a, a we're watching next gen at the moment but he's not a fan of uh, of classic track by any straight, uh, stretch of the imagination um and it was really distressing to watch an episode where kirk refers to uh scotty as a thick-necked thistlehead because i have a feeling that expression is going to haunt me for the rest of my life so so thanks writers of star trek i'm really grateful <laughs> <laughs> still yeah. bless him for trying weird scotty episode weird scotty episode. yeah and like i said it's the first kind of scotty centric episode we've gotten but the only insight we get into him is that he's horny so is everyone <laughs> in the enterprise that's nothing new <laughs> yeah yeah would it be would it be more unusual if he wasn't horny and just really really expressed concern for his his shipmate yeah exactly. it's just very odd that yeah i mean again this is almost a limit of the time or just something that we're really thinking about when writing television, but just like the lack of character. But we do see episodes that focus on Kirk, Spock and McCoy as characters that uh, flesh them out. So I guess, yeah, it is strange then that like Scotty does not have really an arc this episode, even though it's the most screen time he's ever gotten. Yeah. Well, they'll build on that for him. I assume like you've still got basically two full seasons to look at. You keep, ass- you keep assuming that. Oh, <laughs> No, no, he'll get his chance. He'll get his chance in the spotlight. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to ruin it again. Of course, <laughs> uh, there was not. So you mentioned the thick neck, that the thick necked thistle head, which incredible turn of phrase. Uh, there was another line that jumped out weirdly to me, where uh, Chekhov is giving what he knows about Greek mythology, or like about. I don't remember if it was Greek mythology or just like uh, like conservation of power. I don't remember now, but. He says something that leads to Kirk saying that, Mr. Chekhov, you've earned your pay for the week. Oh, and yeah. That stood out to me because, uh, again, I'm more of a 24th century historian, but are they post scarcity in 2020, 60? Like, it's, it's never, and- ever clear when that happens right that, right there's yeah. a, right there's a whole conversation around this um, and it depends how literally you want to take certain expression so like he might say oh you know you've earned your pay for the week in the same way that i might say at work you know oh i've got a lot of paperwork to do today but i don't actually do any of it on paper you know it's all on my computer um so you could view it as being something that's just like an expression that that still exists within the within the lexicon uh and star trek to the wrath of Khan, uh one of the uh one of the things that Carol Marcus is asking for for the Genesis project is funding. Uh, huh. So that seems to imply 
that money still exists. And by Star Trek Six, why do I know all this stuff off the top of my head? What is wrong with me? <laughs> by Star Trek Six, um, the old crew are being pulled out of retirement one last time, and Scotty has a line about, uh, you know, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I've just bought a boat. Um, so it's not really clear, but there's something in Star Trek four about, Oh, you know, nobody understands money because it doesn't seem to exist anymore. So <laughs> like, take your pick. It's, it's basically just a big old mess. <laughs> uh, also, I apologize for that lesson, lesson in the uh, Star Trek financial economics. Oh, I think that was great. And I love I love that even in the 23rd century, scientists are still trying to get funding for their research projects. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's, it's a lovely moment. Oh, I just wanted to address something related to Walter Koenig. Can we talk about some of his recent tweets, which have been kind of incredible? Uh, there was I the haven't one... seen these. Oh, okay. So there was the one from last week on August 11th, to give people a little clue when we're recording this, uh, where he tweeted out, come see me before I die, hashtag GalaxyCon in Austin on September 1st through 3rd, which, God, incredible sell. Just love that. But the one that I've been thinking about ever since he posted it was in June of 2023, where he tweeted out, Bill Schaffner is not a friend, but his work on Boston Legal cannot be disputed. He brought a great deal to his performance. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is quite the bitch he puts on. <laughs> I mean... Even the Star Trek and Riddle Seniors cast in general always struck me as most of the ones not in William Shatner have a good sense of humor about themselves and their work. But Canning especially um, that always seemed to have like a very fun sense of things. Mm. I just love that he's watching Boston Legal in the year of our Lord 2023. <laughs> yeah, and like has high praise for it. Even though Bill Shatner is not a friend. Yeah, he. I do think he's the funniest uh, guest star on the Star Trek Futurama episode, which is oft-cited because it was my first major exposure to Star Trek. Yeah. But he, uh, the line reading where he's like, I've moved beyond Star Trek or something like that. He's like, I have my own house and my own keys. <laughs> Just, <laughs> he's so funny. And mm. yeah, I, if for some godforsaken reason this ever becomes a Babylon 5 podcast, he is such a good guest star on that show too. So I'm really excited to get more into Chekhov as we get into season two going forward because, yeah, I love Koenig already. Well, and, and you know, if he wants to guest on this podcast, that'd be lovely too. Yeah. We'd love to have him. Or anyone. <laughs> so, yeah? From the cast, to be clear. I mean, we, don't, we, we vet our guests in this podcast very carefully, which is why we have such high-quality guests as Michael with us today. I don't want to imply otherwise. But it'd be, you know, if anybody connected with Star Trek wants to come on, that would be all right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good. I think I saved that. Phew. Yeah, all right. Um, I'm basically out of thoughts on this one because like, it's not that deep an episode, but I do want to float this idea. Can you imagine if the Klingons came across this? I'm trying to imagine. I think Apollo would be dead. They would be <laughs> they would be fighting him. I mean, it's it, it's an interesting idea if you wanted to do like Star Trek, but from the perspective of Klingons or Romulans rather than uh, the Federation, because presumably they must have ships that go out and explore. They must have scientists. They must have people who are interested in things other than i don't know 
hitting themselves with pin sticks and, and roaring a lot. You know, that, that those things must exist within the Klingon Empire. Somebody must have invented the Klingon warp drive. Somebody must have invented the Romulan deflector shield. So, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting thought experiment. Not interesting enough that I want anybody to make it or that I would watch it, but it's an interesting thought experiment to, to, to imagine, yeah, what would Star Trek be like from behind the wall, as it were? There was that Lower Deck Season 2 episode that was kind of about that. Oh, that was great. Yeah. That was a really good one. Yeah. But I think that's almost all we need. Well, in that case, I think we can probably draw a veil over uh, who Mars for Adonis. Our temple has been phasered. We are left with a smoking ruin. And the only thing to do is lament over our final scores out of 10. So, uh, Michael, what would you care to give this episode out of 10? Ooh, yeah, this feels like a 5 or a 6. Okay. Go on, pick one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna press you. Uh, let's just go five point five to really just you know, put it right in between. We have many arguments about point five scales on this, and I'm fully in favor of them. And Kev isn't, so thank you for taking my side. We'll say no more about it. Kev, over to you. <laughs> I'm not against you using them. I'm against me using them. It's too much for my brain to think about. Um, I am going a little higher. I'm going with seven. I think there's just enough here that it was a very fun watch, a very easy watch. It's just looking at what I gave like sixes and sevens to last season, uh, the sixes were a little more on either the dull or problematic side. I think seven's like a good standard for like very watchable, very entertaining, even if there's flaws. That's fair. I'll, I'll say one thing about this episode. Um, one of the reasons that I, like I mentioned earlier, I watched this with my partner, who's not really a, a, a Toss fan at all. But one of the reasons that he ended up watching it with me was because I was kind of dreading watching this episode and it would be a good one to take the piss out of. And I actually ended up enjoying it considerably more than I expected to. So like, it's not an all-time classic, but I think it kind of does its best with what it's got. So I think I'm going to give it a seven as well. I think that's fair. It, it, it's it's not, it's certainly nowhere near as good as what we had last week with a, a mock time. Um, and we'll encounter many more gods as we sort of waltz our way through the Star Trek universe. But, you know, like as a first, like, genuine god kind of meeting thing, it's fine. So, yeah, I reckon seven out of ten for this one. And I'm not going to change my mind so uh we'll leave the scores there and move on to recommendations michael you're our guest so uh, what would you like to recommend for us this week well i've been playing we love katamari which is the sequel to the incredible video game katamari damacy so i'll recommend uh katamari damacy for those who aren't familiar the premise is that uh one night the king of all cosmos who i guess you could say is a godlike figure uh, got yeah. a little drunk and destroyed all the stars. So you, as his poor put-upon son, the prince, have to roll up a bunch of objects on Earth to be turned into stars with, like, a bizarre sticky ball called a Katamari. It's a very strange game. It's very funny. Uh, and, yeah, I recommend it as just, like, a wacky time to spend rolling up everything from paper clips to Godzilla. Yeah. Sounds like a thing. Excellent. Thank you very much. That sounds really weird. I, I, I love things that take those kind of thoughts. That's, that's excellent. Um, Kev, what have you got for us this week? So I'm going to stay in Japanese culture because our guest, one of our guest stars episode, Michael Forrest, I was delighted to find out, um, had a long career dubbing anime from the late 70s to the mid-2000s. Oh, wow. And he, he hit, like, Akira, Ninja Scroll, and Ghost in the Shell, which is, like the holy trinity of late 80s, early 90s, big anime movies. 
and uh, in the Dub Purple Paprika as well. So a lot of classy movies. Um, also did a lot of different roles in different Mobile Suit Gundam shows. And I think I talked about the most recent one, which from Mercury on a previous episode, which again, I recommend one of just the best TV shows I've seen last year in this. Uh, I'm going to talk about another Gundam one that he was in just because I'm inspired. Uh, This one's harder to find on streaming, but there's a very nice Blu-ray that was recently released. It's called Mobile Suit Gundam 0080 War in the Pocket. It's a six episode. It's like three hours total like side story that takes place during the original series, which if you aren't aware what Gundam is, it's soldiers and giant robots fighting each other, a civil war between earth and a spaceship colony. Uh, That's pretty much all you need to know. Even going into this, you don't really need to be familiar with the original series as much, but this uh, war in the pocket is about a young boy who's on a different spaceship colony. It's not, that's a neutral party in the war. And he roots for the bad guys on the show, which are the, the rebelling colony, but he really just wants to see giant robots fight. And to put a fine point on it, he gets to see giant robots fight in his hometown. And something that Gundam has always been good at is, well, if a giant robot is fighting in a place, that's going to cause a lot of problems for people who are on the sidelines and around it. And war isn't actually that fun. This is not like a, I don't know, like a speed racer kind of very happy-go-lucky fun anime. This is Gundam has always been like, more serious and philosophical minded. And so this is very much what if a kid who is into like battling and wars and cool giant robots in the abstract suddenly found that on his doorstep and it's very dramatic and moving. And I really like that little mini series. So yeah, uh, Gundam war in the pocket available on Blu-ray. You can probably find it less legally pretty easily as well. Not that we have to be finding uh, things less legally to be clear. Yeah. And there is an old guy in the dub voiced by Apollo from Star Trek. Nice. I mean, that's, that's, those are all win-wins. That sounds, that sounds yeah. excellent. Oh, lovely. Um, I'm going to recommend a game. Actually, technically speaking, I suppose two games uh, this week. Um, they are the, the mini games. So Mini Metro and, and Mini Motorway. They're both available on Steam. And they sound like the dullest thing in the world. And there is something so compelling about them. Um, but particularly Mini Metro. Um, it's a, a strategy game or a puzzle strategy game, I suppose. Uh, and it's developed by uh, New Zealand uh, developers called Dinosaur Polo Club. Um, and basically, you have a bunch of stations and a bunch of passengers, and you have to keep things moving. Um, they appear sort of randomly in the maps, and you, you have... Uh, different ways of controlling them, uh, different lines you can put together. Uh, you have uh, rivers that need to be crossed and environmental factors. Um, and it's just this, it's 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 very soothing game to play, but it's also not at all soothing to play. Uh, it's very easy to kind of fall into it. Uh, it it's got a lot of, um, well, the cities are all mapped on real places. It's also quite pleasing because they're not just Western-centric. So you have London and Paris and New York and, and Los Angeles, and that's fine. But you also have St. Petersburg. You also have Nanjing. You also have Lagos. So it's not it's not something which is exclusively kind of Western centric. It's it's a really great little strategy game. It can take you anything between 
uh, sort of five minutes and the rest of your life to play. Um, and it's just a really nice, compelling, low stakes, but very kind of engaging game. Uh, the other one, is the, the second one in the series is called Mini Motorway, um, whereby you're basically just trying to get people to and from uh, a bunch of malls, which again, sounds kind of dull, but it's not. The gameplay is subtly different. The strategies that you need is, is are, are different. Uh, the approaches you take to the way that everything works is different. And it's it's not quite as good as Mini Metro, but it's still really, really great. Um, and yeah, like I know there will be people listening to this rolling their eye, but like, trust me, if you have Steam uh, and you can give these a go and you like puzzle games or strategy games, it's more than worth a go. It's a, a, a delight. It's also available um on i think it's on android i think it's on on ios as well and just yeah just give it a go it's a lovely a lovely calm little thing so that's mini metro and uh, mini motorway those are my recommendations this week and with that we can move on to plugs so michael what would you like to plug uh nothing much to plug right now but you can find me on twitter and blue sky at future has been Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Yes, we're on Twitter at talktrek to you, which I still update even though I don't use Twitter anymore. I am pretty much permanently on Blue Sky now with the occasional Twitter pop-ins, but pretty much on Blue Sky, uh, Max Rebo's roadie. Uh, and JJ's writings are at www.jjmcquarry.scott. You can find... Uh, JG also podcasting on Beatles Stuffology, going through Beatles track by track. And I frequently guest on the Off and On podcast, Total Massacre. It's been a little quiet now, but hopefully get back up and running soon. And yeah, I think that's all I usually say. Oh, yes, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Lovely. And Michael, thank you very much for joining us in this exploration of uh, thoroughly authentic Greek culture. You're welcome. I will now release my giant hand from the podcast and uh, fade into the wind. Thank goodness for that. I can breathe once more. Lovely. Um, no, that's it for this episode. And next episode, uh, we are going to be encountering the changeling. Oh, great. This is going to be so much fun. Well, as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then... Keep talking.